Hello and welcome to Genius Hack. And sadly, this is the end of season one of Genius Hack. Thank you so much for joining us along the way. Uh, we are going to be celebrating this with two back-to-back best-of episodes. This is the first of those two. And today we will be looking at our best interviews that we have done throughout the year. So stick around. We're starting off here with David Moore from Astronomy Ireland, talking to us about Astronomy Ireland itself and the Christmas Comet. I give talks in schools all around the country and the first thing I tell them is the Irish invented space exploration. Newgrange is the oldest astronomically aligned building anywhere in the world. So ancient Irish people over 5,000 years ago were studying the sky to see what was going on. In fact, they used it to forecast when was the best time to plant crops, which literally saved their lives. Um, That's continued right the way through till the um, 19th century when we had the biggest telescope in the world down at Burren County, Offaly. And people came from all over the world to look through this giant telescope. It's the Hubble Space Telescope of its day. And even now we're involved in the European Southern Observatory, which is building the biggest telescope mankind has ever seen, dwarfing anything the Americans are planning. So European, and in particular Irish astronomy, is the best space exploration in the universe that we're aware of. And this is the kind of things we feature in the magazine every month. That's so cool. Sorry, Sean. I need to jump in there. I didn't realise that Ireland was so heavily involved in in space exploration and telescopes and everything. It gets better. (laughs) Really? Oh, yes. Next year we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of the first man on the moon. Mm -hmm. And, of course, he was Irish. He told me himself. I interviewed Neil Armstrong a few years ago. And he said they just traced his family tree, and his family came from County Fermanagh. Wow! So we're doing a documentary about it next year, and then it traces actual family roots. Uh, he passed away in 14, 2012. Mm. So there's a huge Irish angle. The first person on Mars could be Irish. If not, they almost certainly have Irish roots as well. There's so many the yeah. Irish diaspora <laughs> out there, and that's what we love to feature. You know, finding angles like that, bringing it home to people. It's not just something you read about or watch on the news happening in other countries it happens here in ireland as well absolutely and i think the astronomy ireland as you said the the magazine and stuff you guys put out was fantastic uh i saw i think it was this month's one where you had the the section on if you're buying like telescopes or stuff like that for people for christmas presents and there was some guides on on kind of what to look out for which i thought was really cool oh yeah we get lots of emails and social media queries about telescopes at this time of year and uh, you know i could give you advice on telescopes. We used to run a huge telescope shop during the boom, uh, but it, when the recession hit, we shut it down. And after that, there's so many available online these days. You don't need an actual shop in Ireland. Yeah. True. But it's fantastic because I think a lot of people going out to buy their first one, they wouldn't have a clue what to be looking for. They, they kind of yeah. know basically what they want, but it's a whole different world if you've never shopped for a telescope before. Absolutely. And we have a web page uh, uh, giving some advice. And what we say to people, if you're you're stuck between a few models that you think you you want one of them, but you can't decide which, send us the links by email and we'll give you free advice. Because we want people to get telescopes and to use them. The more they invest in the hobby financially, the more likely they are to stick with it for the rest of their lives. And we think it's a fantastic hobby for life. You can make a career out of it. And if you don't become an academic astronomer, while you're studying your astronomy, you'll end up studying science. And Ireland is, of course, a huge science economy. Something like 60% of our GDP, that's three times more than a construction industry was at the peak 
in, in the in the mid noughties and uh, about six times bigger than the agriculture sector. So, wow. so Ireland is all about science. That's so exciting. Like I never would have realised that. And just as you were saying that there's tips on how to pick out the best telescope and suited for what kind of person I think with this day and age with social media and everything kids especially will be more interested in space and they'll see more than maybe they did 20 years ago so that interest will be there already so there might be more uh, even with all the Mars landings and photos from Mars coming it's going to be it will be a wonderful Christmas present I'd say absolutely and you know you can start off with a, a telescope for 20 quid you buy a pair of 10 by 50 binoculars yeah. binoculars short for binocular telescopes it just simply means oh. one free die <laughs> and you, you know you, they'll have 50 millimeter lens at the front the little pupil in your eye is only seven millimeters so <laughs> they're seven times wider that means they collect times seven which is 49 times more light than your eyes do okay. that's a huge jump in power yeah absolutely and I've done that myself before as well, where like standing outside and just, especially down the countryside more so because you can obviously see more of the sky, where I just use binoculars and the amount more you can see with just a half decent pair of binoculars is amazing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you've got 50 times your standard eye power. There are bigger binoculars than that, but they get too heavy. But thanks to Chinese manufacturing good quality optics, uh, when I was a kid, that wasn't the way binoculars were expensive. They were made in Japan. Uh, today, a good pair of Chinese binoculars, most of you look on the back, are made in China. Yeah. Uh, will, like you say there, show you star clusters, galaxies, double stars, coloured stars. Uh, you can even see the moons of Jupiter with a simple pair of binoculars. Oh, wow. wow. Oh, I think I know what I want for Christmas now. <laughs> <laughs> Sold. <laughs> um, so, of course, Astronomy Ireland, as you said, events going on all throughout the year. And um, yeah. in particular, you've got two events coming up over the next week or so. We do indeed, and these are all open to the public because we're always trying to get the public to join Astronomy Island. We're, we've become the most popular astronomy club in the world. You could argue the universe until <laughs> they find some aliens. Yeah, we've no proof you're not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll claim the universe yeah. for the time yeah. being. And uh, what we do is we like to set up, some of the members have big telescopes. They very kindly bring them along. Uh, to let other people look through them. They're thousands of times more powerful than your eyes. It's like the jump from your eyes to binoculars. Well, this is a jump from binoculars to as big a jump up to giant telescopes. And we often look at the moon and planets, mm-hmm. but this Christmas, there's a comet around. A comet that goes around the sun every five and a half years mm-hmm. and just happens to be coming unusually close to the Earth, no 13 way. times closer than the sun. It's called Comet Vertanen, or we're calling it the Christmas Comet. <laughs> and it was this close again. We ran the calculations through a NASA uh, portal, and uh, even in 500 years' time, it doesn't even come eight, uh, an eighth uh, as close as it does this month. So this is really a once-in-a-lifetime chance to see this particular comet. I saw it last night out in the countryside with the naked eye, and mm-hmm. it's going to get a bit brighter over the next few weeks. Uh, and if you've got a pair of binoculars, you get an even better view of it. So we're running a watch for it with giant telescopes look into the heart of the comet, as it were, on Friday night, 8 o'clock, in Blanchardstown, at where the Astronomy on headquarters are. You'll get all the details on the map on astronomy.ie. Bring the whole family. Absolutely. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. The opportunity to get to have a look at that through, like, obviously much better telescopes than a lot of people are going to have at home, even mm. if you are an, an amateur astronomer, you might only have something 
kind of mid-range, yeah. you know, so it's a fantastic the opportunity. The telescopes costing thousands of euros, wow. so not many people have access to these kinds of telescopes. Yeah, that's fantastic. And the fact, as I said, the fact you can see it with the naked eye as well, it's great that you can, if you can't make it to the event, if you can get somewhere with clear skies and you have yep. a, a decent pair of binoculars, you're still going to get a nice view. You've got the whole month, and in fact, you'll even see it with a pair of binoculars, certainly in January, mm. and it's the cover story of the December issue of Astronomy All Magazine. Um, but just saying that the comet probably won't be passing for 500 years or more, how how do you go about calculating that? How do you <laughs> Well, the, well, it was thanks to Isaac Newton and Edmund Halley of Halley's Comet mm. fame. Yeah. Uh, Halley actually encouraged Newton to, to publish his, his, his theory of gravity. Yeah. And that enabled him to predict this comet that he thought was the same comet. In fact, he, Halley showed that this comet comes back roughly once every lifetime. Yeah. And it's called Halley's Comet ever since. It'll be, it'll be back again in 2061. Oh. Um, now we know about three and a half thousand comets that go around the sun and they all obey the law of gravity and fortunately gravity is very predictable mathematically mm. uh, so we can predict thousands of years in the future and thousands of years in, into the past if we measure wow. how the comets are moving accurately right now wow that's fantastic unbelievable that you can actually you know with some amount of accuracy you know predict that far in the future it's, it is mind-blowing yeah Yep, I mean, I remember over a year ago, we were looking at the highlights for 2018, and we could see that Comet Vertinen was coming for the end of the year, and that it would get particularly close and therefore be bright. And the nice thing is, it comes every five and a half years, so although it normally needs a telescope to see it, we, we were used to how bright it gets, uh, so it, you just factor in the extra closer distance, and it gives you a pretty good guide, and it's stuck to the guide as to how bright it's supposed to be. Mm. I was delighted to see it with the naked eye last night, because comets visible to make it eye are very rare and this one's high up in the dark sky all night long nearly till midnight anyway and just as somebody who stares at the stars a lot is there any way to kind of differentiate between like it might be a plane because there's a few times when there's been a meteor shower and like is that am i seeing a meteor or are my eyes playing tricks or is it a plane is there anything that separates it out from and makes it really obvious that it's a comet Yes, the, the classic idea of a comet is it whizzes across the sky. In fact, it doesn't. It sits there motionless all night long, at least as far no as the naked eye or a pair of binoculars are concerned. It is actually moving at tens of thousands of uh, miles or kilometers an hour, yeah. but it's so far away that you don't really see that motion, except from night to night. It will be okay. near one star one night and another star the next night. So if you see something whiz across the sky, that's a shooting star or meteor. Yeah. If it drifts across the sky, for a few minutes, it's probably a man-made satellite. The International Space Station's flying over tonight at six minutes past six. Uh, there's actually a meteor shower peaking on uh, Thursday night, the 13th. Oh, wow. The best of the year, called the Geminids. We'll get 20 times more shooting stars than normal that night. Wow. Uh, and there's the Comet Watch the night after, and our Christmas lecture the following Monday. So it's a very busy week for us here in Astronomy Island. Definitely, and I suppose if you look at the sky at any point this week, you might see something, <laughs> whether it be yeah, a meteor or the comet or the satellite. You'll see the comet every night this week and every night next week, and oh. the stars will, will be half as good the night before Thursday night and Thursday. half as good the night after. So they're well worth watching for two or three nights, in fact. Up next on the best of Genius Hack Part 1, we have Dr. William O'Connor, who is an associate professor from UCD, talking to us about AirSat 1. Okay, so, um, it, well, it's the first Irish 
satellite. So that's exciting and, and historic. Mm-hmm. Um, which is being built in UCD by mainly by students. Uh, so it's a student-led project. Well, when I say students, these are postgraduate students, mainly yeah. people doing masters or doctorates. Um, and it's uh, organized or sponsored in some way by the European Space Agency. So Ireland is a member of the European Space Agency. Mm-hmm. You'll see the little Irish flag on the side of the ESA rockets and so on. Oh. So we're there, and as part of part of their brief, ESA's brief is education in space. And under this program, they they assign some of their budget for this. One of their programs is to invite people to put a satellite into space. So we're building the satellite and the European Space Agency will take it up to the International Space Station and launch it from there. Um, now, that may sound, uh, I don't know what it sounds like, but uh, <laughs> say it's a lot of work. Yeah, yeah definitely. Work. Um, now, it's, it's a very small satellite. It's technically known as a microsatellite or a CubeSat. Mm. Um, and this is a change in the world, the space world. Traditionally, satellites were often very big, very yeah. expensive, could take 10 or more years of development of big teams. Mm. Recently, the tendency is to go for more satellites, but much smaller, and okay. use off-the-shelf commercial components as much as possible. So that makes, it, makes them cheaper, easier to make, and cheaper to get into space. So... Our satellite is an example of that. Mm-hmm. So it's, we're calling it AirSat-1, E-I-R-S-A-T, which is a slightly clever name. That <laughs> E-I-R, well, uh, besides being for Ireland, it's also Educational Irish Research Satellite. Oh, <gasps> I thought it was just for Ireland. I like that. Well, it's both. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and we're calling it AirSat-1 because we're hoping it won't be the last. Mm. Uh, so we're trying to develop expertise to do more of this in the future. Yeah. And uh, in fact, if you you can go on the internet and look up AirSat One E I R S A T One. Uh, there's also Twitter, and um, you'll find more information. So people who are interested can find out more and photographs of the students who are involved and so on. Um, now, so the plan is well, it's it's all supervised by a program within ESA called Fly Your Satellite. Yeah. Mm. So uh, over a year ago, nearly two years ago, um, some people in physics in UCD, the physics department, made a proposal. So, so the European Space Agency offer, invited people, said, well, we'll put your satellite into space for you. We'll launch it if you do the right thing or what you propose. So a proposal was made and it was accepted. Um, so that's what's got us started. And uh, as I said, that was uh, nearly two years ago now. Um, and we've, since then, we've gone through a long, detailed process of designing the satellite. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it's got a few, three experiments on board, uh, original experiments, uh, all designed in UCD. Um, and then in addition, it has everything uh, an ordinary satellite needs. I'll just explain well first of all um, you you may be imagining a big thing this is all the size of a a shoebox even a small shoebox um so or your liter 
carton of milk a little bit bigger, somewhere around that size. So it is quite small. Yeah. So yeah, it would fit in your rucksack if you were carrying it around. Wow. Handy. <laughs> <laughs> but if it's small, it also needs everything on board that a bigger satellite would have. Mm. So it has to have radio communication. We need to be able to talk to it. It has to have an onboard computer controlling things. It needs power supply, so it has solar panels to get power from the sun and power up to charge up the batteries. Oh, very good. It has what's called an attitude control system. Attitude is what the space people use to, to describe just direction controlling, because it needs to point in a certain direction. Yeah. And uh, that needs a control system. And uh, there are a few other things needed on board. So it's it's a complicated little piece of machinery um, mm. and because it's going up into space it, there are all sorts of special requirements on mm. it um, so and because the European Space Agency is going to kindly take it up in one of their launchers which is going up to the International Space Station regularly so they, they bring up take up uh, food and supplies and oxygen and and uh, astronauts who are they're permanent people living in the International Space Station, as you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're going to hitch a ride on one of those service missions. And then the astronauts on board the International Space Station will shoot it out uh, later on. So um, because they're doing all that for us, the European Space Agency follow everything very, very closely because they don't want to take anything up to the International Space Station that might give off sunny, funny vapours yeah. or course, yeah. the batteries start overheating or the radio comes on when it shouldn't and interferes and so on, so mm-hmm. on. But also because they're supporting us, so they want to make sure we do it right. So we have the benefit of having all their experts checking everything we're doing as we're going along. Um, so... Uh, that's where we are at the moment. Um, we've the, the, there are a number of milestones along the way. The, um, so, um, a few well, months ago, yeah. Sorry, no. I was just going to say um, you you mentioned earlier on. Um, I didn't want to stop you in the middle of your flow. Um, sure. But you mentioned earlier on talking about how it's being it's gone back a bit, but talking about how making this it was done using kind of more off the shelf parts and stuff rather than uh, specialist parts Um, which has got to be fantastic I say for people who maybe will be looking to get into this field sort of down the road or maybe they're at home and they're sort of wanting to kind of play around with it because they know in future this is a field they'd love to get into and love to be kind of a part of where they know they they could actually go and find these parts and possibly get an idea of how to build this kind of stuff themselves Sure, yeah Um, well um it would perhaps the most expensive thing is getting this thing up into space. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, but actually, the building part of the satellite, the components that every satellite needs, um, are, are they are what are available off the shelf. By commercial off the shelf, I mean there's quite a few companies, uh, maybe half a dozen companies, certainly around the world, who are, who will make you, who will design or sell you. Uh, say the radio communication side yeah. of it, the onboard computer side of it, the electrical power control side of it, those things are on printed circuit boards that you can buy and then you can put them into your satellite. So, so typically your satellite might have something special on board, but you still need all these other things which are standard. 
and um, so now when I say cheap we're not talking small money immediately yeah. each of those things well you can go on the web of the different companies and see they'll even have a price list there um, but uh, we're talking I, relative I suppose in mm. comparison to it, some of the exactly. massive satellites that are up there now yeah. it's relative yeah. so each of those components might be costing you 10 grand 15 grand mm. that sort of money as opposed to hundreds of grand yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, because you, because of the standardization makes it uh, uh, much more economical. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in terms of you know once it's up there, you're you obviously there's there's a particular mission you're you're aiming for here. There's stuff you're kind of going for. What's the uh, the overall goal for AirSat oh, One? Good question. Right. Well, there are three experiments on board, uh, which are novel, new, uh, designed in UCD. The first one is um, to detect what are called cosmic ray bursts. Now, what are they? Well, it, it turns out that there are bursts of cosmic radiation, which is um, electromagnetic radiation coming from very, very far away in the universe, mm-hmm. which are very bright over a very short time. So it's like a flash. Uh, we say short time, it lasts maybe... 10 seconds, 12 seconds, which in astronomical terms is very short. Yeah. And, um, and this is very, very powerful radiation, which uh, hits and then goes away. Um, now, they uh, were only de- detected first when people went up into space or high altitude because the, the atmosphere shields us down below here. Um, and in the physics department in UCD, they've developed a new kind of sensor detector to detect these cosmic ray bursts, which is a special crystal which um, scintillates or it, it produces light when the cosmic rays go through it. And then you detect those flashes of light, the photons of light. And that's the way you detect this ray, cosmic ray burst. And this is a new kind of sensor in that it's lighter, it's low voltage. It's um, the, the previous sensors were high voltage vacuum tube type things which were expensive and awkward so that's one experiment detecting cosmic ray bursts um the second experiment is testing out some coatings which were developed by an irish company called InBio. these are coatings that the european space agency is going to use on a satellite to go around the sun solar explorer and this, these coatings are protecting the satellite from the radiation of the sun, um, so they're heat protection mainly. Mm-hmm. And um, obviously they've been fully tested on Earth in, in ovens and vacuums and so on, but not in mm-hmm. space. And the space environment can, have a, can affect the coating in some way. So we have on board, we have four samples of the coatings, two black, two white, and uh, they are going to test those those coatings so that's the second experiment and the third if you're still with me yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah. um, which is the one i'm most interested in or most involved in um which is a, a new way of what's called attitude control mm-hmm. um which means we, we've to control how the satellite is pointed in space so when it comes mm-hmm. out of the international space station it could be tumbling and head over right. heels um, so the first thing is to stabilize it, stop it tumbling, and then we want to point it in a certain direction so that we um, 
can make the measurements and, and get the right amount of solar power and so on. And we have a, a new way of doing that or calculating what's needed. Um, I, I don't know why you want me to go into details there, but how are we controlling the attitude or mm-hmm. direction? Well, that's an interesting story because um, there are coils um, on, in the satellite. We put current through the coils that creates a magnetic field. And that interacts with the Earth's magnetic field. Yeah. And that's okay, how we get turning action or torque. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have to work out what current to put in and when. Um, and for that, uh, the, the calculations are somewhat tricky. So yeah. that's what we're working on. Um, uh, Sorry, just obviously there's going to be an awful lot of data coming back from the satellite. Is it going to be a matter of when it comes back, like if it comes back to Earth, is that how you'll be analysing the data or is it when it's overhead or where, where does the data analysis come in? Fantastic. Very good. OK, so, yeah, another aspect of this whole thing is building what's called the ground station. Mm-hmm. So on the on the roof of the building, in, a physics building in UCD, we are going to have a big antenna, which we hope will be picking up the signals from AirSat 1. Mm-hmm. Um now, we can only start picking up signals when it's over the horizon. So okay. we had to do calculations of how, how much it's going to be or for how long, and that depends on the orbit. <laughs> so, uh, and how much data we can get down is to determine how quickly we can get the data and how long we can talk to it, how long it's above the horizon. Mm-hmm. So see, we're yeah. reckoning about 29 minutes every day. Oh. Um, so we have a window when it's above, and our antenna aerial will have to track it point towards it and we'll know where it is and um to to get the maximum amount of data we point the antenna towards it Mm. and we hope that'll give us all the information we're looking for amazing and that's i mean nearly half an hour a day i thought it would be kind of every few weeks or something that it'll be passing over but that's great that it's it'll be daily yeah, well, the orbit takes about 90 minutes. Oh. So, it, so it goes the whole way around the world every 90 minutes, so it's going wow. pretty fast. That's, yeah, it's yeah. extremely fast. <laughs> but, but that doesn't mean it's over Ireland all, all the yes. time, because yeah. obviously it's... Uh, and the orbit is at a funny angle. It's um, You might imagine it first as going around the equator, but in fact, the oh. International Space Station orbit is at a quite a sharp angle to the equator, so it goes up fairly near the North Pole and then oh. fairly near the South Pole. Very um, good. So an hour's will be doing more or less the same orbit. Wow. So what kind of speed would that be? Uh, or can, do you know? It's it's of the order of um, 30,000 kilometres per hour. Wow. Um, <laughs> so pretty fast. Yeah. <laughs> You get get stopped by a speed camera going that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't try that on the M50. <laughs> <laughs> but that that's incredible. And yeah. like, so it's essentially, as you said, it's going, it's following um, roughly the orbit that the space station will be following. Mm. That's right. And you were talking as well a little bit earlier about using, in terms of navigation and stuff, using the the Earth's magnetic fields. Or that's right. Mag- is that kind of due, you know, in terms of the fact that that's what you're using, is that just kind of because 
it's it's the best source of that rather because obviously in space there's no real up or down mm. so to sort of to navigate yourself so is it kind of like the earth is just sort of the, your anchor point essentially well it's there are a few reasons for doing it there there are a few ways you could control your attitude as it's called one would be to have little rockets or thrusters mm. uh, so you fire them to move yourself around but they, they're heavy, they're, you have to have fuel, you can run out of fuel, and you have to yeah. alter the calculations. So because this whole thing is very small, mm. we wanted something that was light and low power. And the coil idea, the magnetic coil idea, means that we can use power, which we're getting from the sun through the solar panels, which are charging the batteries, so that you can use electrical power. Um, there are other ways of doing that, things called reaction wheels, where you spin little wheels on board, which, and the reaction causes you, gives you a turning action. But again, there's a weight involvement there and mechanical rigidity, yeah. reliability and so on. So the magnet, these are called magnet torquers, um, which is compression of magnetic torquers. Um, they, they are, they're the simplest. Um, now, the there are a few problems with them. The amount of turning action is tiny. I mean, think of your compass needle swinging in the Earth's magnetic field. There isn't much turning action going yeah. on there, and mm. the needle is very, very light. Our thing is a bit heavier than a compass needle. <laughs> so the amount you can get of torque you get is very small. That's yeah. one problem. And then the Earth's magnetic field, because the orbit is going up near the North Pole and South Pole mm-hmm. in 90 minutes, or 45 minutes each, um, it's changing continually. So that's part of the complication. So it's it's an interesting problem, but it's the best if you want something that's cheap and uh, light. Yeah. yeah. I think it's amazing that something so small is able to gather so much, like do so many experiments and is going to be so useful. But as you said, like it's, it's maybe a little bit smaller than a shoebox or mm. bigger than a carton of milk, like. That's right. But if you think of how much is on your mobile phone... Uh, very good, small. actually. Yeah, I kind of never thought of making that comparison. You're so right. <laughs> you have an onboard computer there, and you have yeah. apps and all sorts of tricks and so on. So yeah. that's, that's the electronic revolution. You get more and more and more into smaller small and smaller spaces. spaces. So um, we're taking full advantage of that in, in, in the satellite design. Yeah. That's amazing. Oh, I'm so excited to hear all. Like, I can't, I'm definitely going to be keeping up with this one. Well, it it is very exciting. Yeah. Um, and and that's from Ireland. Everybody is learning an enormous amount. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm learning, and uh, and it's, it's the students who are doing the work. I want to emphasise that very yeah. much. Uh, so there are some older heads like me, uh, staff, who are involved in supervising and guiding a little bit, mm. but they're doing all the real work. Um, the designing and building and testing. Um, and um, if you go onto Twitter, you'll see photographs of the students working. Uh, some of them, some of the times they're wearing funny clothes because <laughs> they have to go into a, what's called a clean room. Um, there's a special room. The satellite will be assembled in a, a clean room where it's minimum dust mm-hmm. uh, because dust can cause problems like electrical connections and um, ah so on so there's a controlled environment a clean room environment and that means you have to put on special clothes so that the hair or fluff or whatever from your head or from your clothes doesn't add to the dust in the room yeah um so th- there are just so many aspects of this whole thing that 
you it's only when you start doing it you realize uh, there's a lot of work and a lot of different kinds of work and different things to be thought about for us all to come together um, but it's great fun it's and very exciting to be involved up next on our best of episode is Julie Hogan from Wits Women in Technology and Science who spoke to Orla about the importance of getting more women into scientific fields um, we were founded in 1990 by oh. Mary Mulvahill, the Irish Times science journalist. No way, I didn't realise that. Yeah, so we've been around quite a while. Yeah. Um, I hope we won't be around too much longer. <laughs> um, and you find that there's been a lot of enthusiasm surrounding it? Um, it's actually interesting to see that the enthusiasm, the, the need hasn't gone away. Um, mm. The need for equality for women working in technology and science yeah. in general. Um, and in fact, we've had a lot more interest in the last few years and membership has been increasing in the last few years, particularly among students. OK, because I suppose, like, unfortunately, it's still a case where women and women in science and technology, like they are there. But um, you don't always associate those jobs with girls. <laughs> no, I, I think in Ireland generally we're, we've been pretty bad at celebrating our scientific heritage, mm. only really, uh, in the last few years with the um, multinationals coming into Ireland that we've um, acknowledged that we're, we're actually good at this. Yeah. Um, we, we have the facility in maths and sciences um, yeah. and we should be uh, making more of it. So it's uh, it's more uh, it, more men are, are taking advantage of it but, yeah. but women don't seem to be for some reason. And do you think like maybe that starts in schools like that like the facilities or the encouragement isn't there or is it like a kind of societal mental block like not necessarily just kind of on on a personal level more so than a on a grand grander level uh, it's certainly a cultural thing mm. um we still do have this association that you know girls are too pretty to do maths <laughs> and, you know it's not really a suitable job for a woman to be an engineer yeah. speaking as an engineer it's a perfectly suitable job for a woman um but yeah we do have this culture of thing and that does uh, start to show it starts to cause problems i think in secondary school i was just looking at the stats earlier and we have the same number we have actually more girls doing higher level science a junior search really? than boys yeah, uh, just slightly more. But yeah. when it comes to the leaving cert, um, the, the girls seem to all move into life sciences or, mm. or mostly move into life sciences, biology, um, and move away from physics and from chemistry for some reason. Actually, yeah, I've I've noticed that as well. Like when I was in school, um, I did I studied biology and home ec, and um, which were fantastic together. And like that was simply because like I just I was not good at maths and. Um, chemistry and physics were kind of write-offs for me because I didn't have the head for them. But um, mm. like the the physics class was nearly cut because there was only seven girls who wanted to do physics, and um, yeah. it was it was too small. But because the girls who were going to be studying physics were going to need it in college, like they they couldn't cut it. But this was a, a year group of 120 girls, like, and only seven did physics. It's absolutely crazy, isn't it? Yeah, I mean. For those of us, you know, my friends who would have gone into engineering and into sciences and technology generally, um, if you ask them, they'll tell you that they were just lucky enough to go to schools where they had those opportunities. Yeah. You know, I was lucky enough to go to a, a school where, you know, similar size cohort, yeah. um, but but there was a full physics class. There was a full chemistry oh, class, honors chemistry, honors physics, honors maths. Um, so it was a great it was a great opportunity, and you know, there was a few engineers graduated out of that class. Cool. And like, 
in in today's society, do you find that there is, as you said, that there's more enthusiasm, or there's more kind of reactions to women in technology and science, the organisation? Is it because as a as a society and in the world, things are moving very fast when it comes to technological advances and science and space travel and everything? Do you think it's because more people are getting curious about it and it doesn't matter if you're a girl or boy or whatever? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing is that science and technology, they're all around us. I mean, mm. every job now involves science and technology to some extent. I'm sure exactly. you're sitting in front of a desk full of electronics. Yeah, <laughs> um, full of know, wires. But, yeah, if you work in the bank, you know, you have to work and you have to understand data analytics and yeah. uh, technology. We can't get away from it anymore. There isn't a separation between being um, scientific and being artistic. They just cross over it. It's, and I think that's something that we always need to remember because just kind of have a little look around, even look at your phone, like the amount yeah. of technology that's sitting in your pocket, even the internet. <laughs> well, that's the thing. We're all carrying around in our pockets more technology than, than landed uh, men on the moon. Yeah, yeah. It's mad. And it's you, crazy computing power. <laughs> yeah, it blows my mind. <laughs> um, and like, do you, is there any... Like, do people go around to schools to give talks about um, like careers in science? Or Yeah, there's a number of role models programs. Um, mm-hmm. and, and with, we work generally with third-level students and up, but there's a lot uh. of programs which work with primary and secondary school students. Oh, cool. Um, the Junior Achievement Ireland that has a two-wise program. Yeah. Um, and Science Foundation Ireland run a Smart Futures program. Oh, cool. Engineers Ireland run STEPS. So there's... Yeah. There's lots of encouragement for not just girls, but for, for girls and boys to yeah. take up scientific and technological careers. And, and part of it is just you don't necessarily know what a software engineer does when yeah. you're 13 or 14. That's it's it. hard to relate that to, to your own interests and to yeah. feel whether or not you could do it. And especially so. if you if you hear about it and then you might realise, oh, I don't have the subjects for it. Or kind of if you, if you heard about it a bit too late, then you have to go back and... Uh, either repeat a subject in the leaving cert or do do a level six or seven to to get into it. So it's yeah. good to have that awareness that like it is kind of being let known to younger to the younger generation as well, not just in um, colleges. Absolutely. I mean, because it's if you don't have the subjects to get into the universities or third level institutions or mm. internships or whatever it might be, um, you know, you can't pr- progress any further. I mean, most of what we do is more about keeping women in um, in the courses, making sure that they don't drop out, keeping women yeah. in the industry, because there's actually very high dropout rates oh. for women working in science and technology, higher than for men. I didn't realise that at all. Yeah, there was a study done in Scotland um, in 2012, and they found that women working in, in science and technology, engineering and maths areas, yeah. were 50% more likely to, to drop out of those areas and go to work somewhere else than men were. Really? And do you think that that's more of like an an internal thing, or is it a subconscious a subconscious reaction? Or I think it can be a number of things going on. I think some not where I work in electronics, it's not as old school. There's not as much <laughs> um, overt uh, sexism, if you like, yeah. you know, because it's a younger industry and people are just more um, I don't know more um, open to change. <laughs> Some of the older industries, maybe more um, heavy um, engineering, it can be a bit more old school. Civil engineering can be a bit more old school, and it can. Yeah. It, and you often there are fewer women employed, so you might be the only woman in the team. Yeah, 
and it can be harder to keep going because you're representing all of womankind <laughs> on your own. No you pressure. Know. No pressure, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, if you do something wrong, it's not just you've made a mistake and you'll, yeah. you know, learn from it. No, all women have, are terrible thing, right? and make mistakes. So that kind of thing. Yeah, it be very daunting. Um, it can be. And I think as well, still, uh, especially in Ireland, um, we, not especially in Ireland, but still <laughs> in Ireland, we do have inequalities in mm. um, childcare and uh, family leave. So the burden does fall disproportionately course, yeah. on women. Yeah. And, um, and that's why we have more part-time, uh, more women working part-time than men working part-time in Ireland. Oh, I see. I sw- yeah. <laughs> when you think about it like that. Um, yeah. I have here that like your vision for for wits um, is a society where women have equal opportunities, experiences, and recognition in STEM. Do you feel like or STM? Um, do you feel like you're you're close to reaching that goal, or is there still a still a while to go? Oh, I think we're a long way from that. Yeah. Unfortunately, and yeah. that's why I was saying at the start that I love if if wits didn't exist, if we didn't need to exist. Yeah, because as you said, it was 1990, was it? It was founded. That's right, yeah, yeah, we're coming up to our 30th anniversary next year. Wow. Um, I, I don't know if you remember, in November, the uh, government launched the Gender Equality in Higher Education. Yeah. Um, and part of that was, uh, the reason that they, and part of it was uh, a number of gender-specific professorships. Yeah. Um, not women-only professorships, I should point out. Gender-specific, <laughs> so certain, if an area was dominated by one gender or the other, they set aside yeah. new positions, created new positions. Okay. Um, for the gender that was, you know, disproportionately down. And the intention for that was to start closing the gap faster because yeah. on the, without that intervention, the projections were that it was going to take 20 years to see what? a fair proportion uh, of women in professorships in Ireland. 20 years. Oh, 20 my years. goodness. Well, hopefully we'll get a nice surprise and maybe 10 <laughs> well, that was the intention of the the intervention, and yeah. that's why um, Antishik Lee Radcliffe at the launch was saying we have to we have to make these interventions to achieve change. Yeah. So, with the extra professorships, they they calculated that they could achieve equity in ten years. Yeah. Oh. So, hopefully, yeah. Hopefully fingers crossed. Watch this space. I think exactly. <laughs> um, if anybody would like to get any information about. Uh, WITS, or Women in Technology and Science, is there a website that they can go to? Yes, there sure is. Um, We're um, at witsireland.com, W-I-T-S-Ireland.com. Cool. Um, And we're on social media, we're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on LinkedIn. Oh, perfect. can't miss us. Yeah, can't miss us. (laughs) Um, Thanks very much for coming on, and hopefully maybe maybe next year we'll get you on to tell us how, how much better it's doing and that even more more steps closer to not needing the organisation anymore which is a funny thing to be saying (laughs) (laughs) thanks for having me on no problem have a lovely day and lastly on our best of episode we spoke to David Moore yet again we had to give him a second run because on this one he blew our minds speaking about dark matter and dark energy I'm still not sure if I'm any the wiser after this as it is just incredibly mind blowing but uh, have a listen and see what you think yeah it's a fascinating topic uh, whoever solves the problem is almost certainly going to get the Nobel Prize mm. because we've no idea what this uh, dark energy is in the universe that's making it expand at a faster and faster rate. Basically, something is pulling the universe apart, oh, and we've yeah. just given, all the best we've done is give it a name. 
dark energy and measure it, but we have no idea what it is. And the dark matter we've known of for even longer, and that's the some substance in the universe that uh, it makes up far more than all the atoms that you and I are made of, wow. uh, whether they be in stars, planets, or gas clouds un- unseen. So there's some, there's, between those two, there's about 25 times more stuff in the universe than we're aware of, than, you know, where those planets and stars are made of. So, you know, in this state of the 21st century, our knowledge of what makes up the universe is worse than ever. <laughs> That's, it's mad when you, when you really think about it like that. It feels kind of equally exciting and scary at the same time, because as you said, it's pulling the universe apart, which sounds a bit daunting and intimidating. Yes, um, we, I give a talk about the universe, and uh, we do a lot in schools around the country. Cool. And we ended the, the, the talk on a bit of a downer in that it looks like the universe is going to expand forever. Uh, in fact, it's going to expand so quickly that right now um, people probably have some idea how small one atom is. Mm. They're incredibly tiny. Mm. Uh, and you need to fit 10 million of them across one millimeter on your <laughs> ruler. Wow. But your house, actually, the space that's sitting in, the front wall moves away from the back wall about the width of one atom every year. Really? So space, yeah. Space is stretching, and that's what's happened since the Big Bang. But we now know that that's speeding up. So it's eventually going to be a long time in the future. Yeah. It's going to be two atoms a year, and then 20 atoms a year, and then a million atoms a year, and then trillions and trillions of atoms a year. Eventually, it'll be doubling its size every year, yeah. and then quadrupling it's increased by a factor of 10, and one day in the future, the universe, the space to the universe will be stretching so fast that individual atoms will be ripped apart and nothing will be able to exist in the universe. Oh, And as far as we know, that's the scary death, if you like, that awaits the universe a very, very long way in the future, much longer than the universe has currently existed for. But this is what, why we're so interested in dark energy. It maybe at some stage it stops or it turns around or does something else. Yeah. If it keeps on doing what it's doing now, that's the fate of the universe. Wow. That, that's unreal. And, and the fact that, as you said, in terms of the, the example you gave there where like your front wall and your back wall mm. are moving away from each other at... Uh, yeah about the distance of an atom per year. So it, it's one of those things where it, it sounds like this big, massive thing that's going to happen in the future. But mm. the fact that we have like evidence that we can show that, look, it's, it is happening. It's not a theory. It's not something we think is happening. We know it's, it's happening. That, it's crazy. Yeah, on the scale of small objects like houses, the expansion of the universe is trivial. And <laughs> happen, earthquakes uh, uh, that dwarf that. And we move in and out of the house all the time to our own motion. It's far more important than the stretching of the space mm. that we all sit on. But, you know, we know from dark energy that's going to increase, and, and that's sort of a good way of putting it into context, putting it in people's minds. It also explains why, you know, we needed 21st century technology really to find it. Uh, it was found just at the end of the 20th century, uh, and the, it was found by looking at very distant galaxies. So you can imagine many houses you would fit between here and a distant galaxy, uh, and each one of those will be moving away at one atom per year. So you've got trillions of trillions of trillions of houses in, in between. Yeah, rate actually becomes kilometers per second, not wow. just one atom per year. Wow. And we're able to measure that using spectroscopy. So this is why we know it's very real and very
very measurable. In fact, it's relatively easy to measure compared to how difficult it is to explain. I mean, oh, My mind's blown here. <laughs> I'm, I, I don't mean to be so quiet, but I'm just spe- <laughs> speechless. That's amazing and scary, but also it's so amazing that we can, that it is measurable, that this is technology that we have. And as you said, that we, we've needed the 21st century technology to enable the, all this, but wow. Yes, and you know, it's, it, it is mind-blowing. And the problem is it's a, it's a very real effect yeah. that's happening in our universe. Yeah. And it's scary in that, you know, why, do, why does the universe exist if it's just going to basically destroy itself yeah. at some stage in the future? And what happens <laughs> after? The only reason. Isn't that, I suppose that's that's the question, you know. Yeah. It, it's kind of another another angle coming in at that question of why are we here? Why is the universe here? Why does <laughs> yeah. it exist? And I suppose there, there probably there may never be an answer to that question. I suppose mm. why why does the universe exist? It kind of exists because it exists. Yeah, we may never know the the, 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 the easy answer to that particular question. Why? Because why is a difficult one to answer? Yeah, there may just be no reason. It's just to do the laws of physics, uh, laws of nature, and it may be that this is one universe and a whole multiverse of universes where things are different in each one, and this is the only one where life could get formed and ultimately become self-aware. But then, what is consciousness? How can matter in a crazy universe like this become aware of itself? And that's a tough question, but the leading minds of the world are working on this and trying to understand that we... We've learned in the past, never say never. Mm. Somebody might figure out the easy way of explaining it. Yeah. <laughs> and they'll be the next Einstein or Newton, uh, because it is a huge uh, topic of research amongst astronomers. Definitely Nobel Prize stuff. Yeah, that's the thing. You know, it's, it's going to be the big, it, it's, it is the big question. It's the, as you said, there's, there's definitely a Nobel Prize in the future of whoever kind of works this stuff out. Um, <clears throat> but when we're talking, sorry, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Saul Perlmutter is his name, won the Nobel Prize for discovering this dark energy, the fact that universe expansion is accelerating and not slowing up, and everybody had thought. So there's already been one Nobel Prize won in this area. Wow. So it's, it's, it's wide open, without a shadow of a doubt. Plenty more opportunities. Mm. Um, but that's, as we said, that's the effect of, of dark energy. We also spoke about dark matter, and you talked about that it, it makes up so much of our our universe around us it's it's in the 90s 90 odd percent isn't it well it's about uh, in terms of the atoms and uh, that make up you and i the planets the stars hmm. the stuff we can see uh, either it's glowing like a star or else it's lit up by a star like yeah. back to matter so that stuff is ordinary matter but there's this dark matter stuff and there's roughly about five times more of it than there are atoms and we have no idea what it is now, it's going to be, we think, a bit easier to explain than dark energy because, first of all, we can measure it much more easily. There's definitely a lot of it controlling our galaxy, the Milky Way, and lots of other nearby galaxies as well. And it's crazy stuff that it's like light, uh, that would, uh, but to, to it, to dark matter, everything in the universe is like glass. So the light can pass through glass very easily. Oh, I see. And so it is dark matter could pass through the Earth, it could pass through the sun, past or anything and it seems to mostly inhabit out in the outer parts of galaxies probably because it's in orbit about the galaxies and that's where it would go s- slowest so it spends most of its time out there and that makes it control the rate at which the galaxy spins and galaxies should spin fast at the center and slow at the edges but mm. like water going down a plug hole 
in a sink. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't. It's, it spins at the same speed. And the only way of explaining that, why the outer bits move at the same speed as the inner bits, is that there's something out beyond that that's much more massive that's controlling the way the galaxy spins. And that was found a long time ago. And we think, well, people used to think, ah, it's probably just unseen small stars. Mm. No, no, it isn't. Maybe it's myriads of planets, but how could that be? We're pretty sure that just doesn't make sense. Um, and the best theory is that it's a new part of a new type of subatomic particle. I mean, we want to have things called neutrinos yeah. that pass through the Earth, no problem at all, they can pass through the Sun, We've been able to trap a few of them and prove that they exist. So neutrinos are crazy little subatomic particles. And we think maybe there's another subatomic particle, the dark matter particle. And, and that's what they're looking for, places like CERN, the Large Hadron Collider, mm. at the moment. They've already found the Higgs boson. Yeah. So maybe they'll find this dark matter particle. And that uh, would tie it down and give us a huge insight into what is really out there. But if it's not that, Science are going to be scratching the head over something that is a form of matter, unlike dark energy, which is just really a force pulling the universe apart. Mm. Dark matter is some form of matter, and we have no idea currently for certain what it is. Uh, but there are theories as well that maybe it's something to do with the laws of gravity and they need adjusting in the same way that Einstein adjusted Isaac Newton's laws of gravity mm. and gave us a better way for understanding things at very high speed. Uh, is relativistic effects, as they're called. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, Einstein's theory of gravity is very similar to Newton's. Along with things are moving slow, they're actually identical. And things start moving close to the speed of light, Newton's totally wrong, and you need Einstein's theories of how things work. And it, it may be that there's another tweak on top of that for the very large-scale universe that can somehow explain either or and dark matter and dark energy and that's really, really the cutting area of research and that was the subject of our new year public lecture and we'll we'll get on to that as well as you said with the, with the public lecture because for people who missed it uh, there is an opportunity to to see that again we'll get on to yeah. that in, in just a second i just wanted to ask really quickly though um we're, we're talking about that and talking about dark matter and as you said we don't 100 percent understand what it is yet and it, is it kind of one of those situations where um we, we say it exists or we know it exists kind of because, literally because there's like a necessity for it. It has to exist. There's something there. We know it's there. We just can't quite put our finger on it. Is that sort of where it is? Yeah, with dark matter, the, the classic experiment that discovered it was that you look at a distant galaxy and using spectroscopy, you can see that the left edge, if still, say the galaxy is, the galaxies are large flat disks. And let's say it's supposed, it's, it's, you're not looking at it from above or from the edge. You're looking at about halfway. So the left edge may be coming towards you, and if it is, then the right edge will be going away from you. Yeah. And the light from the stars in those edges, you can measure with a spectroscope and figure out how fast they're actually moving. It's a great mm. little trick that physicists have. And uh, it works extremely well. Now, you can measure the very edge of the galaxy, halfway from the center to the edge and near the center, and you would expect from, if you, if you do the mathematical calculations, the center, the stars in the center, they're close to the center of the galaxy. They'll be going around very fast. The ones out at the edge will be moving much slower. And that's not what people measured when they first did it. Mm. They were a bit shocked. Now, they thought, oh, there must be just some unseen gas and dust or something else in the galaxy. Because what else could it be? Yeah. Nobody thought there'd be any crazy dark matter particle. But it became obvious that 
telescopes and astronomy became better, that there aren't faint stars or unseen planets floating around in interstellar space. And so it had to be something exotic outside of the galaxy. So the real picture of a galaxy is the atoms, stars, planets, gas and dust spinning around at much the same rate, rather like a, a, a car wheel, a solid wheel. And then out beyond that, there's five times more stuff that gravity is actually affecting the, the inner stuff because it isn't solid like a wheel. It's individual particles, but it's been forced to move like a solid wheel by this stuff further out. And stuff is the best <laughs> description we have <laughs> for dark matter so far. It's, it's all just so fascinating. It, it's unbelievable. Thank you so much for joining us. Genius Hack Season 1 has come to an end. Stick around. Next week, we will have our second best of. And then hopefully after that, we will be back to normal with Genius Hack Season 2. Again, thank you so much for being part of this. Bye-bye.